Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop war games, and role-playing games. Today, we're talking about rangers. Yay! Yeah, we're out in the woods doing ranger things, tracking stuff, building places where you can sleep at night, being one of the weakest classes in 5th edition, all the classic ranger things. I'm your host, Troy, my pronouns are he, him, and with me as always... I'm Ed, always Ed, my pronouns are they and them. Uh, I can't think of a good joke for this week's intro. Ah, that's fine, we'll get to the jokes later. But before we get to Rangers, we have another little segment, and we like to call it The Weekend Hobby, where we talk about what we've done in the last week, and I think we've done a decent amount. I ran two Eberron games, and also a game of my The Sprawl, which is a Powered by the Apocalypse cyberpunk setting. In my Eberron games, the two parties each faced basically the same thing, and they came out of it very differently. One of them uh, got savaged by the mechanical owl bear, allowed an assassination to happen, and the creator of the mechanical owl bear got killed, and they lost their patron. They are no longer going to be employed by the same person because they kind of they kind of failed this one. A lot of people died. It was a mess. Whoops. But they got some amazing role play out of it, so. That's actually really cool and was a lot of fun to have happen. The other group had the same situation and just slaughtered everything that came at them. The owlbear was destroyed. The cultists were soundly defeated. The third person showed up and just like noped out after only a handful of rounds. They saved the assassination target. They saved the researcher and are going to be praised as heroes throughout the city for the public acts of heroism and valor that they just pulled off. Even if a lot of it is call lightning and just flinging massive amounts of halberd barbarians everywhere. I guess that's a way to do it. They're a fun group. My sprawl campaign attempted to, well, was hired to do a B&E where they were going to take a bunch of plants, a bunch of house plants, out of a biologist's apartment. And they got like, ten plants out of the maybe 40 that were in the apartment. And it's not like they didn't find them all. They found all of the plants that I set up for this apartment. They just decided that grabbing some of them and putting them in boxes and then carrying them down to their delivery van was good enough. And no one would notice about the, like, environment-sealed orchids or the miniature giant sequoias or just the normal house plants. And that they could leave those behind. Just doing the bare minimum. Yeah, the smallest amount of work they could get away with. Which, you know, I appreciate. I appreciate that. But it did mean that they got to the, like, drop-off point and the client, like, shows up with a big container truck to, like, move the stuff. And it's like, uh, where's the rest of it? Where, where are my plants? It's, it's... In the back. The back of what? You've got a delivery van. Yeah, about that. Yeah, so they um, they did not make any friends on their mission. Although they did reconnect with an old friend, which is pretty fun. So they, they also attempted a, like, building-to-building zipline and window break 
in the mid-afternoon. Yeah, nobody nobody will see us. Trust us. They got away with it. <laughs> I think because they were doing it in residential buildings and everyone was at work. Because in the grim cyberpunk dystopia, nobody can work from home. Boo. What? It's a corporate dystopia. You know that kind of stuff is going to happen. So, Ed, what about you? What's your weekend hobby been like? If by hobby you mean spend money on hobby stuff and do nothing else, that's been about it. Been traveling pretty much all week for work, so I really haven't done a whole lot. Booted up a 3D printer again, so that's been running. We'll see how that goes. Warlord Games was doing a deal on some 2000 AD stuff, so I ordered the starter box for Astronium Dog, since I'm a fan of 2000 AD comics. We'll find out if the game's any good. If nothing else, I'll at least have some neat-looking miniatures for something like Stargrave. Yeah. That's pretty much it. Work is good for overtime, just not as good for actually getting stuff done. You finished a D&D session less than half an hour ago. Yes, that is true. We we did play D&D. <laughs> And how was that part of the weekend hobby? <laughs> it was good. The uh, The party tried to make a deal with an eco-fascist moose until his partner uh, decided that them teaming up with the moose was too much of a betrayal. So they ended up having to fight some uh, ice druid and her spiders. Uh, that encounter, it seemed like it might go a bit south uh, in terms of how well the player characters were going to fare, so... They made it, and now we're going to go have some more fun in the woods. Actually, something going south is good when you're fighting an ice druid, because it gets warmer. Ooh, that's true. Also, you forgot to mention that the druid wasn't making her concentration saves for conjure animals, which would uh, have made that fight much easier. <laughs> Probably. Because those spiders would have disappeared about halfway through instead of taking as long as they did. It, she was she was very, very hardly concentrating, or concentrating hard. I can do words. Words are important here when we podcast. But you know who where words aren't important? In the forest. In the wild. Yes, in the forest. The woods, the mountains, the seas, the beaches, the plains, the caves, I guess, if you're a gloom stalker. The apiaries, if you're a swarm keeper. <laughs> I, want, I want a bee ranger now. Yeah, we'll get to that one. Rangers. Rangers are... Uh, Rangers have been around for a long time in Dungeons & Dragons. Rangers were originally envisioned as warriors who used tracking and other wilderness skills to hunt down their foes. They were primarily inspired by Aragorn from Lord of the Rings, who introduces himself as a Ranger of the North. Other inspirations include Robin Hood, Jack the Giant Killer, Diana, the Roman goddess of the hunt, and the Greek mythic hero Orion. The core conceit for the ranger is generally that it's someone who is an outdoorsman and a warrior. They typically use bows. A lot of times they're shown to be dual wielding. They've got a sword and a dagger or two swords or something rather than a sword and a shield. And they typically wear lighter armor, leather or the like, because... You're out in the woods, you don't want to wear heavy, hot metal armor all the time. Rangers didn't show up in OD&D. They first showed up in 1st Edition. They were available in the player's handbook as a subtype of fighters. Like fighters, they could use any weapon and wear any armor. 
but unlike fighters, they gained bonus attacks and improved attacks slightly slower, and they used a smaller hit dice, d8s instead of d10s. They did get more hit dice, though, so it kind of balanced out. They had extensive tracking abilities, could ambush people better than other classes, and around level 8 they started to get limited spells, and they also did bonus damage to giants and humanoids. By humanoids, it meant like humanoid monsters, orcs, and gnolls, and other things like of that nature. Not the gnolls. <sighs> Just the gnolls. First edition rangers were required to be good aligned, and could only be humans or half-elves. At higher levels, they could recruit followers. Um, most classes could recruit followers of some type in first edition. Rangers were interesting because they could recruit good aligned monsters as part of their followers. So they could get like a Pegasus or a unicorn or a brass dragon or something. In second edition, Rangers had their hit dice improved. They were matching up with fighters and everything. And uh, while they could still wear armor and use all weapons, a lot of their abilities now required that they used light armor. They also gained an animal empathy ability so that they could, you know, talk to an animal or use their skills to sort of understand it. And their damage bonus was now focused against a specific type of creature they chose rather than giants and humanoids, rather than spreading it out. If you're me, you always pick spiders. Yes, spiders is always a good choice. I I like picking undead a lot. That's just a fun one. They also were restricted, like a lot of classes in 2nd edition, they had kind of restrictive stats required because you had to have good dexterity and strength and wisdom in order to be a ranger. In 3rd edition, the ranger got, I think, better. 3rd and 3.5 were some of the really strong ranger times. Their bonus against specific creatures became the favored enemy ability, and at higher levels, rangers got the chance to add new types of foes that they would be fighting. Uh, their spell casting was improved, they got their spells much earlier, and they had their own spell list that, like, they were the same spells that a wizard or sorcerer or a druid might get, but they were, you know, they had their own list to pick from that made sense for the rangers to use. Instead of being to recruit animals as followers at high levels, they got an animal companion feature, allowing them to basically have a pet that would fight alongside them. In 3.5, rangers were given better combat abilities. They essentially got the choice between two weapon fighting and using the bow. And this really helped them a lot because it let them sort of decide which style of combat you want to do with your ranger and how good you're going to be at it. Ranger was always my default class in third edition, mostly out of just sheer un uncreativity, but that's the one I always picked. Rangers were a very flavorful class in third and 3.5. They had a lot of cool abilities. The Dritz books were popular, and that character was a two-weapon fighting ranger with an animal companion. So, uh, yeah, there were a lot of people being like, I want to play a ranger, and ranger was good. I don't even think I ever even did anything particularly flavorful with rangers. It was just, for whatever reason, just the default class that I always picked. People like rangers, what can I say? And in 4th edition, rangers appeared in the player's handbook. They were a martial striker, meaning they didn't have magic initially, and they 
focus on like mobility and single target damage. Like in 3rd edition, they had the option to focus either on archery or on two-weapon fighting. That's about all I know about 4th edition rangers. It's about right for us. Sorry. Sorry, 4th edition. Currently, 5th edition rangers are kind of one of the more controversial classes. Many people consider them to be the weakest of all the Dungeons & Dragons core classes. They are half-casters. They get features that focus on exploration, survival skills, and tracking enemies. And there have been a number of like proposed fixes to improve the class. Uh, most notably, the revised ranger from the Unearthed Arcana playtest. Wizards of the Coast has said multiple times they don't plan to release an official revised ranger class. They're just happy to adjust it a little bit in books like Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Personally, I think the Rangers being weak is just that I don't know a whole lot of games of Dungeons and Dragons that focus heavily on the exploration aspect right now. It's currently kind of the weakest of the three pillars of like combat roleplay exploration. So the Rangers focus on that one kind of leaves them not as much fun to play in every situation as a lot of the other classes do. I guess for the Frost Maiden campaign, because like the exploration and to another extent, like the weather and tracking, they could be useful. But like you said, it's very dependent on whatever you're doing. And so if you're not doing all that exploration or you don't need somebody who can follow stuff in bad weather, then yeah, you're probably not going to need it. Yeah, and most of that stuff is just done via a survival check anyways, mm-hmm. which plenty of other classes can get survival. Druids, barbarians are two of the real common options. And they're not substantially worse at it. The rangers just get abilities that tie into rules like, um, oh, if you're tracking something, you can only move at a slower speed over the course of several hours, unless you're a ranger and you can move at full speed. But I don't think I've ever seen a game where that comes up. Because most Dungeon Masters don't really worry so much about exact times that it's going to take you to get from point A to point B while tracking a thing. Yeah, I think that it'd be a very DM-specific issue. I am also not that worried about it. Rangers have a lot of cool options and a lot of neat class features beyond just exploration stuff. For starters, the class features includes a favorite enemy, which gives you bonuses to, well, okay, tracking your favorite enemy if you run into them, and also checks made to learn information about a specific type of foe. I had a ranger in one of my campaigns whose favorite enemy was undead, and so he made an insight check to try and l- learn some things about undead when he saw them, and he, I was able to be like, okay, yeah, you know from your years of fighting undead that they are vulnerable to, that skeletons are vulnerable to bludgeoning damage. Whack. Stuff like that is something that rangers are actually really good at with their favorite enemy. They also get the natural explorer ability, giving them travel and movement bonuses in a specific type of terrain that they get to pick. Uh, This would be, you know, running through the forests or beaches or mountains or whatever. At second level, they gain fighting styles and spell casting, so they can start doing that two-weapon or archery, and they also get spells, because magic, yeah. 
At third level, they pick their archetype and also gain the severely underused ability that allows them to spend spell slots to sense creatures in a mile radius around their location. Rangers have like a built-in alert system that they never seem to use. <laughs> High-level ranger abilities allow them to just ignore difficult terrain, hide in plain sight, fight invisible foes, hide as a bonus action, and eventually add their wisdom modifier in damage when they're fighting their favorite enemies. So, what of the archetypes, you say? Rangers have plenty. Uh, two in the core book, three in Xanathar's Guide to Everything, two in Tasha's Culture of Everything, and one in Bizban's Treasury of Dragons. That's a weird spot for it. It is, until you hear the name of it. Is it a dragon ranger? It's dragon-related, yes. Dragon-adjacent, you might say. The core book archetypes are probably where the class got the reputation for being the weakest, because they are... Of all the ones on this list, the core ones are the weakest. Uh, it's sad, but eh, what can you do? You can buy additional books, I guess. <laughs> the first of them is the Hunter. The Hunter has a focus on combat, has a bunch of options to allow you to specialize in a chosen area of combat. Most of these features are aimed at fighting either large groups of weaker foes or single massive enemies like giants. And these do give you some cool abilities. The thing is, most of these abilities could be done equally well by, like, a fighter. So it's it's kind of... Eh. Again, that's why people thought it's weak. Weak sauce. The other core book archetype is the Beastmaster, which is the one everyone likes conceptually. Because this is the one where you get your own animal companion. As presented in the player's handbook, uh, the magical companion that you get at third level is a CR one quarter or weaker b creature. It can be a mastiff, a hawk, a like raccoon or something. It's not a very strong companion, and most of the abilities that you get at higher levels don't actually do much to improve this. For example, none of them make your companion's attacks magical. Lame. Which is pretty pretty rough, given that after a certain level, pretty much every enemy is going to have damage resistance, or just straight out immunity to non-magical attacks. Come, my non-magical raccoon friend, let us attack. Yeah, and all of the abilities are related, that the class gives you are related to your animal companion. They just don't make it that much stronger. You're going to be running in with a mastiff, and it's going to get savaged by the first dire wolf you fight. Not my raccoon. Yeah, it, it's not going to go well. However, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything improved on this and kind of fixed it a bit by adding the Primal Companion feature, which says basically that Beastmasters don't have to summon an actual animal. You can summon a magical spirit animal that can look however you want and has abilities that are more suited to a combat thing that you can fight alongside. Um, the hit points are better, the, like, actual combat abilities are more suited to players having access to them than the beast options are. Plus, you know, it's a spirit animal, so you can say, oh, yeah, it just looks like a tiger. It looks like a wolf. It looks like a Pokemon. Whatever you want. 
can't think of any hilarious animals to insert in here. Pangolin. Yeah, spirit pangolin's good. Spirit pangolin would be amazing. I, I want a spirit pangolin now. Thanks. Thanks for get, putting that in my brain. You're welcome. So Beastmaster with the Tasha's Cauldron of Everything adjustments is actually... I like it. I like it with that. Um, but then we get to the Xanathars, and Xanathars added some very interesting options. The first one is the Gloomstalker. The Gloomstalker is where everyone goes, oh, this is the really good ranger. A Gloomstalker is a ranger who hunts in the Underdark or in, like, shadowy, dark areas. Gloomstalkers get bonus spells, improved ambushes, where they do extra damage when they, like, get the drop on people, super dark vision, where their dark vision is better than everyone else's dark vision, and they can hide from other people who have dark vision, better saving throws, and eventually the ability to give other, like, attackers disadvantage when they swing at you. On paper, it is probably the strongest combat-wise ranger. And it's got some good utility abilities to go with it. So, I see why people like Gloomstalkers. Getting spooked. They're the spooky boys of the ranger community. Xanathar's also added the Horizon Walker, which are rangers that deal with planar stuff. They fight against threats from beyond the material plane, whether that's angry elementals or evil aberrations or dumb celestials or an invasion of modrons whatever you'll have horizon walker rangers show up to do that they get extra spells the ability to magically sense portals between planes which is kind of cool a kind of smite ability that you can trigger as a bonus action to do extra damage a neat ethereal step thing and eventually the ability to like teleport between attacks and get resistance to damage when you get hit by it they have a lot of cool options they're not perhaps as flavorful as say the gloom stalker or the Beastmaster, though it's hard to like just be like yeah i'm a magical planar cop <laughs> we also have the monster slayer which is like the hunter archetype but focused on specific powerful foes you know dragons vampires beholders something like that the monster slayer is all about finding one specific enemy and killing that thing they get bonus spells they get the ability to like look at a creature and figure out what its resistances and vulnerabilities are they get a ability to mark a foe as being that important thing that you're gonna slay and then higher level abilities that are mostly are built around that marked target that allow you to do more damage, to counterattack, to resist their spells. And they also get a cool thing where they can kind of use a reaction to magically prevent another creature from spellcasting. You force them to make a saving throw to actually cast, cast their spell. Could be interesting. Yeah, it's a cool, like, no, no, stop it, stop it. No, no spellcasting. None of that. None of that in here. If I was making like a witch hunter, I think a monster slayer ranger would be an excellent choice. Mm -hmm. Or an oath of vengeance paladin. But I think monster slayer ranger would be, be the first choice I'd go for. Then in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, we got two more. The first was the Fey Wanderer, which is rangers who are 
sort of represent both the mortal and the fey realm. They've connected to the fairies somehow. They get bonus spells. They can do extra psychic damage when they hit people. Have a bonus to charisma checks and, like, better charisma skills. At higher level, they get advantage against being charmed, can summon fey allies, and can cast Misty Step just for free. Um, they also get some cool, like, flavorful stuff. They can... They typically have sort of an element of fey magic surrounding them, and that can manifest in different ways. There's a lot of roleplay opportunity for fey wanderers, I think. And then there's also the swarm keeper. Woo, swarms! The go-to choice for those who like swarms of things. Their swarm is technically a swarm of nature spirits, but you get to choose the appearance of it. So it can be... Bees. Bees. It could be mice or rats. It could be... Centipedes, if you're feeling extra creepy. <laughs> Tiny snakes. Whatever. You pick what it looks like, and the swarm can help you in combat. It can do extra damage, move the ranger around, hold foes in place. The rangers get bonus spells to sort of interact with this, and as they level up, the swarm gets stronger. Can give you temporary flying speed, more damage, even the ability to, like, teleport between where where the swarm is. Uh, swarm Keepers are fun. They're real interesting. I like them. I think that they're one of those things that people have been wanting out of the Ranger class for a long time, and so when it was finally, like, made official, everyone was quite happy. And, you know, everyone just release the bees. Release the bees or the hounds or the hounds with bees in their mouths. All right, so that would be two rangers, one a beastmaster, one a swarmkeeper working together <laughs> to produce uh, hounds with bees in their mouths. And the last one is the Drake Warden from Fizban's Treasury of Dragons. Yes, it's a beastmaster but for people who really like dragons. Not sure how I think about how I feel about that. You get a magical draconic companion, a drake. It acts it acts on the same set of rules as the beastmaster's animal companion or like spirit beast companion. At higher level, the drake gets bigger or stronger and gains a breath weapon attack. It's it's animal companion but you get a dragon-based animal. It feels potentially overpowered. Eh, I don't know. The The level at which you get the breath weapon is not super low. So at that point, you're probably strong enough already that it's not going to break the game. At that point, people are already throwing fireballs around, so having your animal companion breathe fire isn't going to be that upsetting. And yeah, I think it's an interesting I think it's an interesting and very flavorful version. I think you could also do it by just saying that you had the magical spirit beast and that it looked draconic, but people like dragons and people get very excited about dragons. So I mean, it's not like it's in the name of the game or anything. It's not like I have a standing policy to include one dungeon and one dragon in any campaign I run. I guess a minimum of one dungeon and one dragon. There can definitely be more. But I have to have at least one of each when I'm running a campaign. 
So those are the archetypes that are available to rangers as of 2022. I don't think they're going to add a whole lot more for a while until they announce another everything kind of book. So we ask a question here on the podcast. And that question is, if you were making a Modron Ranger, what archetype would you use? Swarm. Just swarms of gears. Yeah, that that was my thought as well. A Swarm Keeper Modron Ranger, but I was thinking Mechanical Bees. <laughs> Just, just for shits and giggles. A Swarm Keeper Modron Ranger who keeps mechanical bees and just unleashes wave after wave of mechanical bees at his enemies. And you can just make your Modron itself just kind of in the, the shape of a honeycomb. Oh, that the bees are like, come off of him? Yep. Yeah, no, I, I could get behind that. A Beastmaster Modron could also be entertaining, especially if he the the character didn't understand like the beast that the beast wasn't a, a human or wasn't another creature wasn't like expected to do the things that humans do mm-hmm. so like he always has his animal companion like sitting at the table with him or he brings it with him everywhere and it's just like yes no I, my animal companion will also need a room here at the end <laughs> do you have any raccoon sized rooms Yes, I, I need a room for Nibbles. Nibbles, be on your best behavior today. Like just not understanding that it's, it's an animal and it doesn't quite work that way. That could be entertaining. Hermit Ranger. It's not, it's not just his profession, it's his way of life. Well, I mean, the Outlander background includes the option for... I was raised by wolves, actually. So, Outlander Rangers... That animal companion might be more than, uh, might be family and not just. Outlander Ranger raised by raccoons. There's a D&D comic that has a, I think it's a gnome druid, or maybe a halfling druid, raised by badgers. <laughs> I guess they're about the same size. So Rangers, a classic class, uh, one that's been around for a long time. Ed, what are your thoughts on the Ranger? Is it too strong? Is it too weak? Does it need more whirlwind attacks? Yes, it needs more whirlwind attacks and more flaming swords uh, to go with my previous ranger character. Uh, I haven't done a whole lot with it as far as 5th edition goes. Just because I haven't played a whole lot of 5th edition yet. But I remember you said that my artificer character who had a Clockwork Pug, as his companion, was a better Beastmaster than the actual Beastmaster class. Yeah, that was pre-Tasha's. The Artificer Battlesmiths that had the Steel Companion, uh, the Steel Defender Companions, Mm -hmm. were slightly better than the Beastmasters at that point because your Animal Companion was stronger um, than the Beastmaster one. Because, remember, the Beastmaster would have a hawk or a mastiff or something and the steel defender was just much better it had an ability it had better armor class it had better hit points so on and so forth the change with tasha's cauldron of everything adding this like spirit beasts essentially levels that out Mm -hmm. the downside of course is that the beastmaster all of their stuff is about making their beast better 
Whereas your artificer had a lot of stuff about doing other things. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, considering that the artificer has replaced my ranger as my like default go-to class, I don't really know if there's much that I would want to do with it. Yeah, um, the one thing I'd like to see with ranger is, again, fight me, Matt Mercer. Making Blood Hunters a Ranger subclass. Fight as in you don't like it or you do like it? No, that's what I want to happen. The Blood Hunter as a class is unnecessary and should be folded in and become a subclass of the Ranger. It should become an archetype Blood Hunter. Okay, got it. That should be the next Ranger archetype that they add in. And they should just pretend that they've never done anything called a Blood Hunter class. <laughs> It's never existed, never has existed. Uh, look into the light, please, and whoosh, men in black the situation. The Bloodhunter class is a ranger that does special stuff, essentially. Thematically, it's a ranger because it's a person who takes special abilities in order to fight monsters. Like the Monster Slayer, or the Hunter, archetype of the ranger. So just folding it in and making Bloodhunter a ranger subclass would fit the design aspect that 5th edition is going for a lot stronger than making a separate class that just does that. With the Artificer, it's quite different because the Artificer does things that none of the other classes are suited for. Mm-hmm. The spending all of your abilities, focusing them on the construction of magical items... And the use of magic equipment is not something any other class does, even in their subclasses. I think perhaps the closest is the Kensai, which is the monk build that focuses on like using a specific weapon and making that weapon better. Wizards can make magic items, but it's not their focus. It's like a sub thing you can do when you know stuff. Mm-hmm. Sorcerers, eh, not really. Clerics, not really. Warlocks, <laughs> like they know how to make anything. <laughs> yeah, so having a class built around making and using magical items was a very different thing. And makes sense. Bloodhunter, it's a ranger with extra steps. <laughs> I also find the name super edgy and annoying, but that's uh, that's just a personal preference. Too edgy for me, bro. Yeah, but we have a Monster Slayer and a Gloom Stalker as Ranger archetypes, so I feel like just throwing a Blood Hunter in there and it's not that far off. In any case, that's my biggest thought on the Ranger, is Blood Hunters just need to be a subclass of Ranger already. It hunts for blood. It hunts because of blood. Doesn't matter. That's where they belong, not as their own class. I think the new... Subclasses, the new archetypes, have done a lot to improve the ranger. I do think more work could be done with the hunter and the beastmaster. Maybe a thing where uh, one of the higher levels, the beastmaster's animal companions' attacks just are magical now. Would be a good call, because monks get that ability where at 6th level, they just punch stuff magically. And I think druids get the same ability, where at higher levels, their animal form does magical damage. To avoid this problem, whereas the Beastmaster doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I think the other 
the other like missing archetype for the ranger is kind of the summoner ranger um which i don't know if that should be a ranger or if it should be a wizard subclass where it's somebody who focused it, it's pokemon it's somebody who just all they do is summon monsters <laughs> gotta catch all the monsters and I don't know if the ranger is the correct base for that, that you put the subclass under ranger, or if you would do that with like sorcerer or even a warlock, where you're making packs with different monsters as you summon them. Yeah, no, it seems it seems more like a ranger thing. I think warlock might actually be the best best choice for it, because the packed uh, the um what is it the the chain, Pact of the Chain, whatever. One of the Warlock features is kind of, is the one that lets you summon a familiar. And I feel like you could build something interesting off of that where you your patron allows you to summon a bunch of monsters. The upside there is that Warlocks typically have fewer spells and fewer um, ongoing abilities. So it would be a good choice to do it without breaking so much. Mm-hmm. And it might synergize with their base abilities more. Because with a ranger giving them the ability to summon all these monsters, when their base abilities are about exploring and having a favorite enemy, doesn't quite synergize as well. Yeah, I guess that's true. At least when it comes to 5th edition, I just generally don't have any strong feelings towards the ranger one way or the other. Once again, your true neutral stance comes to the fore. Yep. Well, uh, that's my thoughts on Ranger. Anything you want to add? or? Nope, that's about it. I just want a honeycomb-shaped Modron Swarm Master now. Me too. Uh, if anyone wants to do fan art, please, please do fan art of a honeycomb-shaped Modron Swarmkeeper Ranger. We would appreciate it. So we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner. And today we're going to talk about a very relevant and timely board game. Do you miss the Cold War? Do you miss the threat of nuclear annihilation? In that case, I think Twilight Struggle by GMT Games is probably the game for you. So for those who haven't heard of it, uh, Twilight Struggle, it's been pretty popular. It was up at the top of Board Game Geek's uh, top 100 games for quite a while. And basically one player is the Soviet Union. The other player is the U.S. kind of slash NATO. And you're trying to win the Cold War by scoring however many points that you need. And you have like a sliding scale where as you gain points, the other player has to work harder to take those points away before they gain points. So it's not just a race to you know, 100 points, it's an actual tug of war to see who can get the higher score by the end of the uh, the Cold War. Game starts off uh, right after World War II and pretty much boils down to each player trying to place influence and gain control over the other countries that are within their orbit. Uh, depending on which countries you are trying to influence, it will either cost more or less points uh, to overcome the amount of influence that the other players already have. Uh, you have a bunch of cards uh, in a deck that are used kind of as your 
special events and special abilities. They'll cover things like the Berlin Airlift, uh, Sputnik, Cuban Missile Crisis, all the really big newsworthy events from the Cold War. And those will let you do things uh, prior to your turn before you go into your normal round of placing influence or trying to coup and or counter coup other countries. And then also in the deck are scoring cards, which get shuffled in randomly. So you don't really know when it's going to call for a scoring round. And when you draw one of those scoring cards as part of your hand, you have to play it. You can't just hold on to it until it's more convenient for you to use it. So you're trying to do as much as you can in a short amount of time because you never know when that next scoring round is going to come up. And the game ends when you either reach the end of the point tracker and one player has all the points. Uh, You hit DEFCON 1, which is when nuclear war happens and everybody loses, or until one player controls all of Europe. So you have to control Western Europe and Eastern Europe and you know, whoever controls that, the game is over, you've won the Cold War. It's a fairly crunchy system. There's a lot of there's a lot of dice rolling. Every event that you try to do is going to involve you and your opponent rolling dice to see who comes out on top. If you're trying to coup or invade another country, you have a space race, which is kind of a safety valve that lets you take cards from your hand that aren't useful since if you play some cards, the effect can be used by your opponent because the cards are labeled as either uh, NATO or Soviet Union cards. So if you're playing a uh, NATO card in your hand, you can get the action points that you need to do your activities, but NATO gets to play the effect. So if you have one that you really don't want to use, you can launch it into space to advance the space race and you get bonuses uh, depending on how advanced your space program gets. Yeah, I want to launch stuff into space. It's a it's a good way to help kind of counteract that system of not wanting to have your opponent do something just so that you can take the points you need to do your turn. But that's also kind of similar to what happened with the, the Cold War and that you have your actual like military and intrigue, but then you also have the space race of this proxy conflict of who has the bigger brain, who can go to space first. And, you know, it's, it's something that you can do that doesn't involve shooting at your opponent. Uh, the only real issue I have with the game is that there is a required number of military actions that you have to take each turn. And if you don't take those military actions, it will increase the DEFCON level by one, which feels kind of like arbitrarily pushing the opponents into conflict. But I don't know if that's has mechanical or historical reasons to why that's happening, possibly just so that the two opponents don't end up just sitting at each other, not really doing anything. But it does feel a little bit arbitrary. I mean, I think it represents the Cold War, like, the everybody started doing military shit because, well, I think the geopol- geopolitical reasons are complicated, but everybody started doing dumb military shit immediately and never stopped. Yeah, that's true. 
But that's for me when I play, that's the spot that I kind of get into the most trouble, especially because the rules are kind of vague as to what is a military action. <laughs> so it's the Constitution. <laughs> Burned. So especially if I'm playing like uh, on the computer, because there's a couple of app and computer based versions that you can play against an AI. Um, a lot of times I'll end up with the DEFCON rationing up really fast because I'm not taking enough military actions and the game is vague as to what those actually are. So it's it's got a couple of things, but overall I tend to like it, especially with the Cold War being one of my favorite historical periods and finding the Soviet Union interesting in a non-problematic, non-wanting the Soviet Union back leftist kind of way. So if you're into history and specifically the Cold War and you have friends who are also into that or you can at least somehow bribe them into playing the game with you, it's a it's a good one. Yeah, no, I enjoyed it when we played. Yeah, and then we uh, we let the Cuban Missile Crisis play out because dinner was ready. Yeah, that was a good way to sort of end the game. Is You can always end the game at any point just by ratcheting up tensions and letting the nukes fly, which is a great method to end any game. And especially, and you could also play that as an actual strategy of like the Nixon madman strategy where you're just like, I have no idea what my opponent is doing. He's just letting it get closer and closer to annihilation. And, you know, it's like, how do you play against that? And it leads to some interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. Uh, and I think that is our board game corner. Yep. So as always, thank you for listening. We put these out every Monday. If you like the podcast, feel free to rate it or like it or subscribe or whatever you do on whatever platform you're listening to this on. You can also find us on social media at, at Noel Country on Twitter and Noel Country on Instagram. And you can follow me on... Uh... Instagram at Animadness might have some more stuff up there, assuming I don't have to do a whole lot more travels. But once you're uh, done buying your copy of Twilight Struggle, don't forget to get a Null Country branded Geiger counter. It's very useful for finding out if Putin has poisoned your pasta with plutonium. Ooh, I like that. Good alliteration there. Yep, I've been I've been holding on to that one for a while. And by a while, I mean like two days. And we promise we will never make NFTs. Or will we? What if we make NFTs of NFTs? No. All of our tokens will be fungible. <laughs> that is the Null Country promise. All of our tokens will be fungible. <laughs> Go Nulls! <laughs>